The Akkad and Kokai Report, episode number 37. Welcome to the Akkad and Kokai Report, the podcast dedicated to making sense of healthcare. From policy to economics, from evidence-based medicine to ethics, join us as Drs. Michelle Akkad and Anish Koka diagnose and treat the latest epidemic of healthcare absurdities. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of the Akkad and Kokai Report. I'm your co-host, Michelle Akkad in San Francisco, and my partner in crime, Anish Koka, is joining us from Philadelphia. Today, we are going to discuss a topic of great practical importance to physicians, and that's the issue of sham peer review. Now, peer review is the process by which physicians who practice in a hospital may be judged by other doctors for the purpose of determining whether they should remain on the medical staff of the hospital or be booted out. And unfortunately, the procedure by which this peer review process is carried out does not always follow the highest principles of justice or ethics, to say the least. With us to discuss the problem of hospital sham peer review is undoubtedly the world's expert on this topic. Dr. Lawrence Hantoon is a neurologist who practices in upstate New York. He is a member of AAPS, the Association of American Physicians and Surgeons, for which he serves on its board of directors as editor-in-chief of its journal and as chairman of its committee to combat sham peer review. Dr. Hantoon has published numerous articles raising awareness and educating doctors on the practice of sham peer review, and for many years, he and AAPS have tirelessly assisted countless physicians unjustly embroiled in this process. Larry, welcome to the show. Thank you, and I really appreciate you and Dr. Coca having me on your podcast, as this is a really important topic that doctors should know about. I agree. Before we start, can you, uh, Larry, tell the audience a little bit um, what's, what, what's the relationship between doctors and hospitals? Doctors are not employed, typically are not employees of hospitals, but they work in hospitals. So what's, what's the arrangement um, between doctors and hospitals? Yes, there's often some confusion, particularly among the public, uh, many of whom do think that all doctors are employees of the hospital. And although, although there are physicians who are employees of the hospital, uh, there are many independent physicians who are not. Uh, both employed and non-employed physicians of the hospital are subject to what's known as medical staff bylaws. That governs the relationship between physicians and the hospital and represents a contract in most states. Okay, so th there's a, a contract um, uh, that's um, uh, made explicit by the bylaws of the hospital so that when, when a, a doctor wants to practice uh, in a hospital, he applies to join the medical staff and, um, and then he, implicitly he signs on to the bylaws of the hospital. Right. And unfortunately, uh, you're supposed to, when you join the medical staff, uh, acknowledge that you've read the bylaws, but I think that most physicians don't. They should, because it really is uh, setting forth the expectations of both the physician as well as the hospital, what the hospital has to provide in performing peer review, for instance. Okay. Now, you know, it stands to reason that a hospital would want to, you know, I mean, they may not know a doctor or they may just... Um, allow a doctor to practice in the hospital on the basis of uh, credentials and degrees and whatnot, but they, they you know, need to have a say, in, you know, if, if a doctor is incompetent or malpracticing or, you know, 
for whatever reason, a uh, 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 danger to patients and whatnot, um, it stands to, to reason that they should have a process in place uh, to review the performance of doctors, right? And to decide if uh, a doctor uh, can be allowed to continue to practice or not. Absolutely. And I want to make it clear from the outset that what we're talking about today is sham peer review, which is bad faith peer review. And I and AAPS and ethical physicians are in favor of good faith peer review. That is peer review that's uh, designed to make sure that the physician is competent and providing safe care to patients. We're in favor of that. The kind that we're not in favor of is bad faith sham peer review. Okay, so when when did that uh, uh, when did that get your attention? Uh, when did you first uh, hear about it? Because uh, frankly, I was completely um, unaware of it, and it's it, I read one of your articles at some point, and then in retrospect, I, I thought to myself, oh, now I remember I was I attended the peer review process, you know, a couple of years ago, you know, somewhere, and that's really what it was. It was a sham peer review, you know, it's. It, it, I didn't have the, the the words to describe it, but but in retrospect, I, I'm pretty sure that that's what's, what was happening. I mean, it seemed to me, I was not directly involved, it was not my department, but I was a witness to it, and it seemed to me that whatever was going on was, you know, uh, seemed to be um, uh, fishy. Um, uh, and so, how, how did you first find out about the fact that sometimes well, peer review is not, uh, not doesn't proceed on, on, on good faith? First of all, I think you're in good company. I think the vast majority of physicians may not have heard about sham peer review, and many of them don't give it a second thought because they believe they're good physicians, they're competent, they provide compassionate care, they get along well with patients, the patients like them, and this will never happen to them. Well, so their first uh, uh, encounter <laughs> and then knowledge comes when they're attacked. So. Uh, my involvement in this dates back to about 2003 or so, when an award-winning journalist for the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette by the name of Steve Tweet did a year-long series called The Cost of Courage, where he delineated how hospitals often retaliate against physician whistleblowers, and some of the cases he reviewed were cases of sham peer review. And about that time, the Association of American Physicians and Surgeons started getting quite a number of calls from physicians who were victims of sham peer review seeking assistance. So in 2004, the AAPS Board of Directors formed the AAPS Committee to Combat Sham Peer Review, and they appointed me their chairman at that time. And I have been running the AAPS Sham Peer Review Hotline on a pro bono basis since then, since about 2004. So is this something new that um, um, has just come about in the last uh, 15, 20 years? Or has it been going on all along? Uh, what's, what's your sense of, of that? Well, I don't think it's new. There have always been people who get in positions of, a pow of power who find ways to abuse that power. And that's what we're talking about here is, is basically people who are in positions of power and can bring false charges against a physician and trump up a peer review and basically end the physician's career. So, I mean, it, it, I think it dates back a very long time. Right. And so what, what are... Um what are the motiv motivations for, for that? I mean, why would, uh, is it just um, 
competition between doctors and and uh, uh, you know business competition. I mean, on a business competition that you know one group of doctors wants to uh, uh, kick a competitor out of the um, the hospital staff. Or what's 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 your sense of what's going on? Well, that's certainly a prominent one. Uh, retaliation against physician whistleblowers is another one that's high on the list. You know, hospitals don't always like hearing about poor care or unsafe care. And sometimes they will act to essentially kill the messenger instead of doing something to address the problem. So retaliation against physician whistleblowers, certainly anti-competitive uh, motives. Uh, for example, if, if you're going to do something that competes against a hospital, again, hospitals don't like competition. So if you plan on opening your own MRI center, for example, and the hospital has, of course, an MRI of its own, they may decide to take some action against you. But there are many underlying motives. I have seen attacks uh, that are discriminatory based on ethnicity, sex, and uh, uh, other, other things like that. Uh, certainly just personal animus sometimes. Uh, somebody dislikes someone and is going to teach them a lesson, take them down a peg or two, and Shampir reviews uh, one way that they choose to do that. Uh, so the, uh, the motives are, are there's just a, a large number. Anything that you can think of that would be improper, people have done at some point. Right. And do you think it's, um, do you think it's getting more common because... Um, just healthcare in, in general has become, um, you know, so difficult, um, much more competitive. I mean, you know, the, the money is not as flush as it used to be in the 60s and 70s. And, uh, and, and then there are new uh, alignments of interests between hospitals and, and medical groups and doctors and whatnot. So is that, um, does that breed uh, more shampoo review now than in the past? Well, certainly competition is one of the underlying things. In fact, there was a case uh, called Patrick v. Burgett, uh, which basically led to the passage of the federal law which governs peer review called the Healthcare Quality Improvement Act of 1986. And that law basically provides nearly absolute immunity to hospitals and peer reviewers for anything they do under the label of peer review, even if it's totally wrong, even if it's contrary to the bylaws and uh, denies due process and fundamental fairness, they still uh, have a very strong immunity to, uh, to protect them. And that type of law where you have nearly absolute immunity for those doing the peer reviews invites abuse. So we, I think we've seen much more abuse of the peer review process since that federal law was passed. You asked about competition. The, the case that led to the passage of HICWA was Patrick V. Burgett. It involved a surgeon who was invited to join a large clinic in Oregon. And they basically had things sewed up at the hospital. Very large clinic. They were all in positions of power. And the doctor declined to join that large clinic and said he preferred to go out on his own. Well, that didn't sit well with the group who didn't even want the competition of a single independent physician, so they trumped up a, a sham peer review against this doctor, and it went to court, and it was an antitrust case, which went all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court, and the doctor prevailed at that level. 
I might add that the AMA filed an amicus brief in that case in favor of those who did the sham peer review, whereas <laughs> AAPS filed an amicus brief in favor of Dr. Patrick, who was the victim of that sham peer review. But he, he prevailed, and then the AMA and others cited that case as this would have a chilling effect on peer review if someone is allowed to prevail and get monetary damages, and we need immunity, and that's how the HICWA law became law. Wow, that's amazing. So, so now there's a law that protects hospital and peer reviewers from immunity uh, for uh, essentially what are miscarriages of justice, uh, except that it's not in the context of any legal court, right? It happens uh, within a hospital, um, and they're, they're, they have some kind of procedure by which they can review uh, a doctor's performance. But um, doctors, uh, tell us a little bit what, I mean, what... Uh, does it, does it vary from hospital to hospital, uh, the, that procedure, and, and how, how uh, fair it is? Yeah, before, can, can, can you tell us a little bit more about the law and uh, what exactly the law says? Sure. One of the things that the law says that you may find shocking is basically that physicians who are accused of doing something wrong in peer review are presumed to be guilty unless and until they can prove their innocence by a preponderance of the evidence. So that's distinctly uh, contrary to the rest of our legal system, certainly in criminal law, where you're presumed innocent unless and until they can prove you guilty in a court of law. It's exactly the opposite in peer review. The other astonishing feature of that federal law is that it does set forth the requirements for conducting a peer review in a hospital. But at the very end of all those requirements, it says, if you fail to meet those requirements, that in itself does not prohibit you from getting immunity. So what a mockery of due process to set forth a whole procedure and then say, well, don't worry. If you don't follow those requirements, we're going to give you immunity anyway. So the answer to the other question is, of course, peer review procedures are very similar from hospital to hospital because they mirror the requirements under HICWA law. So they're very similar from from hospital to hospital. The other thing to know about peer review in hospitals is it's a quasi-judicial process. So it doesn't follow the norms in a court of law. It does not follow the rules of evidence in a court of law. So such, such things as hearsay, which would never be admissible in a court of law because it's not reliable, are admissible oftentimes in a peer review hearing. Well, if it's not reliable in one setting, what makes that reliable in another? Absolutely nothing. Uh, the other thing is, is uh, and there's many things, but there's no, uh, there's no voir dire in hospital peer review. Voir dire is the process in a, in a court where a jury's basically selected by eliminating those uh, who either have uh, some bias that's obvious against the uh, plaintiff or defendant, and uh, that type of thing doesn't occur in peer review hearings generally. There are some rare instances where it does, but in most cases, there is no process whereby a doctor can question these uh, possible jurors on the hearing panel and, and find out if they have biases, uh, and that's pretty important. The other thing is there's no subpoena power at a peer review hearing. So in a court of law, if you have a person who has relevant evidence, you can subpoena that person either to deposition or at trial to testify. But in peer review, 
if a witness under the hospital's control, for example, an employee or someone else who's financially connected with the hospital, if the hospital decides they're not going to produce that witness to be questioned, uh, there's no subpoena power that the doctor can have in the hospital setting that uh, would require that witness to come forth and be cross-examined. You have to go to court to compel them to do that. So it's a, it's a whole other proceeding. Mm-hmm. So what an, what an utter ridiculous joke this is, right? You have essentially a kangaroo court banana republic that's set up to, uh, to kind of uh, uh, deal with um, uh, you know, uh, physicians that get labeled as disruptive, whether that be uh, with any real evidence or, or not. I mean, so essentially what you can have happen is um, uh, some anonymous complaint to be trumped into, you know, because some anonymous complaint be trumped into something that's real and really the onus is on the physician and the deck is massively stacked against the physician in this regard. You know, the thing that makes me the most angry about the process um, is that it's, it, it is, it's, it is the, this utter ridiculous uh, scheme uh, is carried out by our colleagues. <laughs> you know, it's carried out by chairman of medicine. It's carried out by chief medical officers. It's carried out by, all the administrative folks, but they're, they're clinicians. Um, and uh, it's, it's um, so utterly uh, disappointing that uh, those are the folks that are the, uh, you know, are the henchmen that carry this, this crap off. Uh, and crap I think out. that that's absolutely correct. And in 2004, the AAPS passed a resolution unanimously at its annual meeting that those physicians who participate in sham peer review are engaging in professional misconduct. It's totally unethical to bring false charges that are knowingly false charges against another physician and end his career. And I think your audience needs to understand that sham peer review, when it goes to its conclusion and the doctor has an adverse action that gets reported to the National Practitioner Data Bank, that is a government-run blacklisting of physicians. And that physician will either have his career totally ruined as a result or many times ended because all hospitals have to query that National Practitioner Data Bank when, before they put a physician on staff and then every two years thereafter, the medical boards query the data bank to see if a physician is in it. And you may not be able to get a license. You may not be able to get on medical staff. You're, if you're uh, in insurance, which I know that, uh, congratulations, you guys are not, uh, but the insurance well, panel. Uh, not so fast. Only, only one of us uh, here. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I, wish, I wish I could say the same. Unfortunately, I'm, I'm not. But. So, I, in fact, you know, that, that's one of the reasons why I, I invited you, Larry, here, because I, I want uh, Anish to get more and more nervous. <laughs> Although here, here it would be, you said not being on, on insurance panels is detrimental to is more detrimental or, or more protective? No, it's just, it, well, it's just another uh, negative consequence that can occur as a result right. of being reported to the National Practitioner Data Bank. And I just want to make one comment about what was talked about just a little bit earlier, the disruptive physician label. That is the most lethal label a physician can be given in a hospital, and it frequently leads to sham peer review and end of the physician's career. There is no evidence whatsoever that is needed to prosecute a physician in the hospital for being a disruptive physician. It's based solely 
on the accusation. And according to the Joint Commission, things like facial expression, tone of voice, and body language can all be used against a physician to prosecute the physician for being disruptive. Very subjective label. It means whatever they say it means. That's the way it works. That's amazing. Larry, can, can you give an, an example, um, e either, either a real-life example or something that you think you know, approximates a, you know, a real-life example? You know, for somebody who seems, you know, uh, let's imagine a member in the, you know, someone in the audience here, a doctor who's on staff at a hospital, um, what could possibly happen? I mean, how, how does it play out? Because initially, they may not even, right, people don't even have a sense that they're being judged or that they're being put on trial, right? It can be insidious, the process. Uh, that's right. Yeah. And I, I've, I've written an editorial on that, and there's often little warning signs, little attacks that precede the actual sham peer review, and doctors need to be aware of that and take note that even if the little attack seems resolved, you know, when they keep coming up with more, uh, that something big like a sham peer review may be coming. So if you're just talking, you know, at a uh, morbidity and mortality conference, for example, and somebody seems to be constantly bringing up nitpicky things that don't have a lot of merit, but they keep bringing it up at these morbidity mortality conferences, uh, don't be surprised that it some point, one of those people may get into a position of power and say, hey, you know what? Uh, we're going to get rid of the competition, get rid of this position. You, you bring up, you, you, you know, I, I think I read the editorial they were talking about. You bring it up, uh, you, you bring up the sequence and you talk about the multiple different uh, techniques uh, that are used very well. And the first one is the, the ambush tactic and the, you know, the ambush tactic and secret investigation. And the ambush tactic is where uh, you know, the office will get a call from the administrating, the, some administrative staff, the secretary of uh, someone in the in uh, administration saying that uh, a meeting has been called for. And the meeting is always called for as soon as possible. Uh, you know, there's a tone of urgency and there's a tone of seriousness to it. Um, um, uh, you ask, you know, what, what exactly is the meeting for? And someone says, oh, it'll be a quick meeting. Uh, and then you show up at the meeting and, uh, you know, you're, you're faced by, uh, the chairman of medicine, you're faced by some other administrative uh, 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 clinical person, uh, and it's it's anything but friendly. This is all again from your editorial, and uh, uh, you know, and again, you've arrived at the meeting unprepared. You have no idea what the meeting's about. They have they have records which frequently they will not release to you, and they will then you know in somber tones read the read the uh, um, read the uh, the accusation um, and kind of put you on the spot and uh, try to make you. Uh, squirm uh, about you know something that who knows when it was if it was you know uh, six months ago or eight months ago and it's an instance you don't remember uh, you know you may stumble you may not you may you may appear in a bad light and that's and that all gets um, it all can get I should say recorded and that can all get uh, you know uh, all be made in the in the further process to make you look especially bad is that that is that correct that's pretty uh, pretty correct. Uh, I published the tactics characteristic of sham peer review and also had, did a present video presentation on that same uh, topic about 10 years ago. And I can tell you that the hospitals and the attorneys who represent hospitals were not very happy with me for basically revealing their playbook of dirty tricks. And certainly the ambush tactic is a very common one where they portray it as a simple and 
formal friendly meeting. And it is, of course, usually uh, very formal and very unfriendly. And like you said, the physician is not told, even if he asks or she asks, what is this about? Don't worry about it. We'll talk about it when we get to the meeting. And of course, everybody at the meeting knows exactly what it's about, and they're very well prepared. And so the physician goes and finds himself sitting across the table, as you said, from like the chief of staff, his, uh, the chief of his division, the hospital administrator, the hospital attorney. So it might be four or five people sitting on the other side of the table. It's very bad to go to one of these meetings for a number of reasons because they, of course, the hospital keeps the record. And if you think about it, it's not just he said, she said type thing because you've got four or five people that are going to stick to whatever the story the hospital wants to stick to. But you're, you're right that uh, since the physician does not know what it's about and everybody else does, the physician does stumble trying to recall uh, the case from maybe a year or more ago. And when you stumble and fumble, it makes you look guilty, which is uh, one of the goals of the ambush process. So that is one of the common ones that we see used all the time. The the other thing you mentioned was, uh, well, I mean, you mentioned it in in the editorial and you mentioned earlier about the guilty until proven innocent. This is, and this is from the, the HICWA law you're saying, which is the Healthcare Quality Improvement Act. Is that correct? That's correct. And you'll often find that same thing in the bylaws. And, uh, and it's, uh, it's in most, in the HICWA law, it's uh, guilty until and unless proven innocent by a preponderance of the evidence. And sometimes right. the hospital makes that even worse on the physician by raising the standard of proof required to clear and convincing evidence, which in the last case I just participated in a couple of months ago, the hospital attorney informed the hearing panel that clear and convincing really meant beyond a reasonable doubt, which is the highest level of evidence that uh, is used in, for example, criminal cases. Right. And it's right. totally false. Never should have informed the hearing panel of that. It's totally false. Any attorney should know that. All right. The, the other interesting tactic is uh, that this numerator without denominator, which is uh, essentially, it doesn't matter if you've done a thousand cases, um, you know, and you're, you, and you're 10 times, your volume is 10 times that of anyone else in the hospital. But if they'll pick out two of those cases and say, look at this, look at these bad outcomes. And, uh, and, and that's a, that's a very common one used against particularly surgeons. Like right. they'll say, look, there have been two horrendous or three horrendous complications. We have to do something to protect patients. But of course, when we compare uh, complications from one surgeon to another or a physician to another, we're talking about rates. Well, a rate involves both the numerator and denominator. And conveniently, oftentimes the hospital leaves out the denominator and simply focuses on the numerator. Right. Now, since right. I published that, some of the hospitals have gotten a little more devious and clever. And instead of simply eliminating the, the denominator, they have started manipulating the denominator mm -hmm. so as to reduce it, so as to make the rate look higher. So they're always coming up, it seems, with uh, more and more clever and devious tactics. Larry, are doctors who are employed um, uh, by hospitals or large hospital system, are they in a better position or, or not? Or it doesn't matter? Well, I think in general, they're probably not in a better position. The reason being is uh, a lot of the contracts that uh, physicians have with hospitals, uh, basically a lot of them say that when there's termination of the 
physician, the physician's uh, medical staff privileges are automatically terminated. Well, if the hospital decides to terminate you for incompetence or patient safety issues and your privileges are automatically terminated, I should mention without peer review hearing or appeal, that's part of the contract, then you have no due process uh, and way to rebut it. And you do get reported to the data bank and without even having a chance to go before a kangaroo court, it's, it's basically over. And of course, the other thing is uh, there's many pitfalls to hospital physician contracts, uh, but uh, they can also require the physician to do things that the physician may not feel comfortable doing. So in one case, a, a colorectal surgeon was recruited to a small hospital that didn't have color, a colorectal surgeon, thinking they would bring in a lot of money, new revenue for the hospital. And when the revenue stream did not appear as anticipated, they looked for a way out of the contract without having to pay the doctor. They easiest way out was to take away the doctor's privileges because if a doctor loses privileges, the contracts always say, you know, well, that automatically terminates the, uh, the contract and it doesn't cost a hospital to do anything. It doesn't cost them anything to do a sham peer review. So this particular colorectal surgeon, they tried to force on ER backup call and the surgeon said, look, I haven't taken uh, ER backup call with gunshot wounds and stab wounds since my residency 30, 35 years ago. I don't feel comfortable doing that. But it said in her contract she was supposed to do all the services they wanted her to do. So what happened in that case and in sworn deposition, the CEO of the hospital testified that he altered the wording of the surgical committee meeting minutes to state that the doctor said not competent to do instead of not comfortable. And that change in wording led to a sham peer review and the end of this physician's career. Wow, that's amazing. I, I think no doctor is, is safe really because you can, you can have enemies uh, if you do a good job. You can, you can make enemies just from doing a good job. You can make enemies um, if you're part of a large organization because the organization may have you know, different goals uh, that are not necessarily aligned with what you're trying to do as a doctor. And, uh, and you can have, make enemies if you're independent. So, so I think it affects really uh, any doctor. Uh, it seems clear. So it can, Go ahead. It so can what? potentially affect anyone. And, and being a good doctor and having your patients like you and like what you do and how you treat, that's not protective, unfortunately. And as you pointed out, sometimes that can even make you a target for some physicians who are not as good in getting along with uh, patients and, and treating them well. So again, it's kind of a way to eliminate the other physician to make themselves look better. Well, what, what, uh, so what, what, uh, what, what uh, tools do we have? Uh, uh, does a physician have at his disposal to kind of uh, fight back or, or you know, how, how does one respond once one is embroiled in one of these things? Well, as you know, I wrote another editorial on that, Sham Peer Review, Disaster Preparedness and Defense, that goes through some of the things that physicians need to do. It helps to be prepared ahead of time, but certainly at the earliest opportunity, when you perceive that something like a Sham Peer Review is uh, coming down the road, you need to get a good, uh, knowledgeable attorney on board as early as possible to protect your rights. 
And that's probably the most important thing that one can do. And the other thing I would recommend is that physicians read their medical staff bylaws, particularly the sections dealing with corrective action, which is usually around Article 8 or so, and uh, the provisions affecting summary suspensions, precautionary suspensions, and the like. So read your bylaws. Great. We'll have all these uh, articles of yours, uh, uh, Larry, um, uh, linked on the show notes, and they are all free access. So they're you know uh, people can, they don't need there's no paywall and so forth. So, uh, right. And and APS is a, an entire page with resources and videos and whatnot um, about shampoo review and what to do in case you get you know somebody gets uh, embroiled in one of these things. Yes, and, and we encourage people to call us as early as possible. It, it doesn't do a lot of good once you've been out in litigation for 10 years and it's very late in the process to, to call us. But call us early on. We can often provide uh, information that might prevent a disaster. I can tell you that on the AAPS Sham Peer Review Hotline, one of the most important pieces of information I give out is to physicians who are very frustrated and they can see they're not going to get a fair hearing in the hospital and they just want to get out of there. They just want to resign and leave. And what I tell them is if you leave while there's an open investigation or peer review ongoing, you will be reported to the National Practitioner Data Bank. Your career will likely be over and you will have no due process rights at all, such as fair hearings or appeals in the hospital. And hospitals like that. They try and coerce physicians to resign. They will often tell the physician, look, it will go better for you if you just resign. You won't have to go through all of this messy disciplinary process. If you just resign, it'll be easier. And, and you won't get, some of them even tell them they won't get reported. And then the next day they do. So beware that's, of that. Right. That's amazing. I mean, it, it's so critical to be prepared and, and to know um, ahead of time, because as you said, there's no, essentially there's no due process. So once, once the gears are, you know, have moved far enough, um, then, you know, uh, physicians have very little recourse. Yes, and in a sham peer review, as I always tell people, the truth and the facts don't matter because the outcome is predetermined and the process is rigged. So when a physician's going through the process in the hospital, it's necessary to go through it and complete it before you can really file a lawsuit. And the one thing you want to make certain of as you go through the peer review hearing is that you have an independent reporter, such as a court reporter, to take down who said what. Don't let the hospital keep the record because oftentimes they will want to keep the record. Trust us, it will be okay. We'll keep the record of who said what. Don't do that. Get a court reporter as a physician, even if you have to do it at your own expense, because what you want to do is preserve the record so that when you go to litigation, you have something independent and reliable to, to cite. Right. Larry, is this unique to hospitals or does it also happen in large medical groups where? Uh, a partner in the group gets booted out for similar reasons and or, or does that is that more difficult in a in a medical group setting it does happen in large medical groups and i was once invited to go to a large clinic and review uh, some of their procedures and they decided against that at the last minute but it does happen in uh, in large clinics it also happens at medical boards medical boards do it uh, but it is primary, it's primarily something that occurs in hospitals. 
Well, Larry, I mean, I, I can't, um, you know, thank you enough and thank the work of, uh, of APS, what APS is doing, uh, because you guys are the only guys out there trying to defend uh, innocent doctors who are trying to do the right thing. That's absolutely, that's absolutely true. We, you know, we're the only national medical organization that is doing anything to try and uh, stop and oppose this growing scourge of shampoo review. And it's not just a doctor issue. It's a patient issue, too, because when the physician's career is ended by a shampoo review, then that good, competent, compassionate physician is uh, no longer able to treat the patients and the patients lose out on good care as a result. So it's a patient issue as well as a doctor issue. For sure. And, and, um, and all of that, but I think you've, you've intervened and you've helped doctors in the process to really, you know, avoid, but, but I mean, so it's not, it seems sort of gloomy, (laughs) but, but, um, early recourse to your advice uh, is extremely helpful and can uh, uh, allow doctors to, uh, you know, to regain uh, the autonomy that they might have lost um, uh, if they weren't, you know, fighting back. It's important well, not, to, not to roll, roll over and, and, and just take it. It's a very scary process. And, and again, I'm uh, grateful to both of you for having me on the podcast to help explain this a little bit to the, uh, to the audience. Okay. Well, thank you very much. Uh, Anish, any, any last question for Larry? No, that was, that was really uh, wonderful, Larry. So uh, it'll be good, it'll be good uh, to have the, uh, all of this was utter uh, uh, Greek to me and, and really no idea that this, uh, this is, this is all going down or this is the process that was so, so terrible. Um, the, um, I just, I just want to want to highlight again the fact that you know it, it's so upsetting to me that this is this is not only does this is this other physicians that 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 do this, but it's also the fact that every one of these organizations that you look at that have that are very prominent, like the AMA, the ACC, you know, you you name name the physician organization group and. Why is it that none of these folks are talking about this? You know, it's really, well, really embarrassing and sad. You know, there was, you, you bring up the American College of Cardiology, and there was uh, an editorial written in 2000 by the editor-in-chief of that time, William, Dr. William Parmley, and he dealt with this issue of Shampoo Review. Mm-hmm. And one of the cases he reviewed was the case of Dr. Larry Polliner in the Dallas area. You may be uh, uh, familiar with that one, an interventional cardiologist mm-hmm. who was a victim of Shampoo Review, went to trial. The jury awarded him $366 million, a penny of which he never saw because the hospitals appealed to the Fifth Circuit, and the Fifth Circuit found that the hospital had immunity. Uh, so the American College of Cardiology, the editor-in-chief, suggested, why doesn't the ACC have its own independent peer reviewers so that when an issue arises involving cardiologists in a hospital, it can be sent for an unbiased, impartial review by people who are with the American College of Cardiology. And that suggestion, an excellent one, went exactly nowhere. You know, that's interesting. Uh, Bill Parmley was my chief of cardiology. You know, when I was a fellow, he was, uh, he was the division, division chief at UCSF. Uh, he retired so- soon after, but uh, after he retired, the ACC became very involved in um, running uh, databases of outcomes that um, hospitals are essentially forced to subscribe to. Uh, there's one for interventional cardiologists. There's another one for um, uh, electrophysiologists. And, and I, uh, I strongly suspect uh, that these databases now are used against physicians 
you know, are used as part of these, you know, Champier review processes, it was going to be more and more common for these databases to be used for that purpose. Uh, to say, to tell it's a doctor, like, look, you're 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 not you're outside the uh, you know the standard deviation or whatnot, and and so forth, and that's another thing. Um, it's like giving the the rope to hang you with, basically. Exactly. And exactly. Uh, too too bad that uh, people didn't follow Dr. Uh, Parmley's really excellent suggestion. I mean, who could oppose an impartial, independent review as opposed to one occurring in the hospital, which may be very biased and partial? Right. Well, I'll try to dig up that editorial and I'll put it on the show notes as well. Yeah, and it reflects. I think it reflects a culture shift that we've seen just in our our careers, um, even my my short career <laughs> uh, from when I was in, in training to, to, to becoming an attending that 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 what the priorities of the heads of clinical medicine were now I mean who the chairman of medicines are now and what their priorities are are significantly different than uh, I think what they what they used to be and it's a sad sad state of affairs I think that's a correct observation well, Larry, thank you, thank you again uh, for joining us, and um, and uh, I, I'm I'm really um, uh, happy that our audience will uh, will um, uh, hear your message and and what the APS is doing. Thank you. It was my pleasure. All right. Bye bye. Thanks for listening to the Akkad and Coca Report. Subscribe for free on iTunes or Stitcher at akkadandcoca.com, where you'll find detailed show notes, our blog, and more. Akkadandcoca.com